smashing. Give everyone the best possible start to the day. See special packs for details. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about responsible JavaScript. What does it mean for code to be responsible and how should we approach projects differently? We talked to expert Jeremy Wagner to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In Fitz Law in the Touch Era, Stephen Huber shines the spotlight on Fitz Law and explains why we should always ask questions and consider what particular guidelines and lessons mean to our users and our products. In the latest in his series Web Design Done Well, Frederick O'Brien celebrates the weird and wacky, perfectly pointless websites. Sites with sweet, innocent, sometimes pointless purposes. Are they money makers, game changers? Not necessarily, but they sure are fun and in ways only the web could really manage. Yes! Nick Babbage and Gleb Kuznetsov are here for us with everything you want to know about creating voice user interfaces. Creating voice user interfaces requires a lot of design expertise in various areas such as conversation design, interaction design, visual and motion design. This article covers the most critical aspects of designing for voice user interfaces, designing the conversation, and designing visual interfaces. In Implications of WordPress Joining the Block Protocol, Leonardo Lozovic discusses some consequences of having the WordPress editor comply with the Block Protocol, a recently released specification which aims to have blocks be portable across applications. Find out what the Block Protocol aims to achieve and how it all connects to WordPress. And Newt Melvier brings us his thoughts on Markdown. Markdown in all its flavours, interpretations and forks isn't going away. However, it's important to look at emerging content formats that try to encompass more modern needs. In this article, Newt shares his advice against Markdown by looking back on why it was introduced in the first place and going through some of the major developments of content on the web. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. He's a technical writer, web performance nerd, developer and speaker currently working at Google. He's written for a list of parts, CSS tricks and Smashing Magazine and is the author of a new title, Responsible JavaScript for a Book Apart. So we know he's a skilled technician and communicator, but did you know he once circumnavigated the globe on a stand-up paddleboard. My smashing friends, please welcome Jeremy Wagner. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? I'm smashing. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. I wanted to talk to you today about this idea of responsible JavaScript. Is this some sort of um, new approach or technique, or are you literally talking about using JavaScript responsibly? I'm literally talking about using uh, JavaScript responsibly. So per the HTTP archive, um, we've seen a nearly 58% median increase in the amount of JavaScript downloaded by mobile devices uh, from roughly 290 kilobytes to almost 500 kilobytes uh, in the last year. Wow. So 
when I talk about using JavaScript responsibly, it's a user first uh, sort of approach to say, to, to critically evaluate what is it that we're building and is, is the goal of what we're building served by modern web development practices, so to speak. And, and I guess that's kind of a, <laughs> maybe not tongue in cheek, but I wasn't taking a jab at modern web development, but one byproduct of modern web development is that it's very easy to add dependencies to projects. Um, you know, everything is an NPM install away and every NPM install has, has a cost. Um, that cost varies. But uh, what we do see is that in that HTTP archive data, uh, the 95th percentile, um, meaning the 5% of experiences that are the slowest, or, or not the slowest, but the, that ship the most JavaScript, uh, that has risen in the last year by about 875 kilobytes to about 1.4 megabytes. Wow. So it's, it's a tremendous amount of JavaScript that gets transferred, and it has both loading performance and runtime performance implications. Um, so you you mentioned performance there. It, it seems like the modern web experience, from sort of my point of view, is like ten percent HTML and CSS and ninety percent JavaScript. Um, and there there has to be sort of performance considerations to that. I mean, you talked about sort of the amount of uh, of data we're we're transferring, but there's there's other performance considerations, aren't there, with having a lot of JavaScript? Right. So having a slow internet connection, and you know. Uh, where where I live in the United States, uh, if you go far enough outside of a major city, uh, it gets kind of difficult, depending where you go, um, you know, to just cope with how slow the internet can be in sort of these rural areas. And a significant amount of people uh, live in areas like this. And so the loading performance aspect of it is already challenging enough when you start shipping megabytes of JavaScript. Uh, but you might also be dealing with somebody who doesn't have like an iPhone, you know, like like an iPhone X or or like an iPhone 13, uh, they might just be on a feature phone or just kind of like a budget Android phone uh, just trying to navigate through life. I mean, think about things like uh, online banking, uh, unemployment assistance or other government assistance, portals like that for applications, um, online learning. Uh, there's just a lot of places where excessive JavaScript can really have a detrimental effect uh, for people who might not be fortunate enough to live in large metro areas or even in metro areas that are not well served by broadband internet um, and those on slower devices. Um, I kind of think as developers, we have this tendency to uh, look at, you know, we buy MacBooks or these high-end devices and we sometimes don't really see where these issues can arise when we, when we overuse uh, JavaScript. And sort of as, as you mentioned there, sometimes it's, uh, the individuals who have the sort of stand the most to lose by not being able to access a service who get penalized by this sort of thing. Those, those people, um, without fast data connections or without very capable devices, are sometimes, uh, accessing services that, uh, you know, uh, uh, mean everything to, it means everything to them that they're able to gain access. So it becomes a, a almost a, a human rights issue in, in some ways. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we tend to see web performance get framed in terms of business value. Um, you know, I've, I was a performance consultant um, for uh, some e-com uh, and like a, a major food company, a major e-com um, like a store, like an electronics outlet. Um, and it's, it's very tempting to do that, right? Because uh, when you work for a business, I mean, obviously you want financials to be healthy. 
uh, and web performance does play a role in that. I think um, I think there are a number of case studies that prove that out. Um, however, uh, there is that human aspect, um, and even for businesses uh, like say like uh, like grocery stores and that kind of thing, uh, yeah, they, they're revenue driven. Um, they want to have healthy finances, um, and so web performance is part of that. But they're also serving a critical need, right? Like you, you have to eat, right? And like some people might be homebound for one reason or another. They might not be able to easily just get in a car. They may not have a car. So they're relying on these services in order to get sustenance. But more than that, assistance uh, if they need it. Um, and especially like crisis intervention and that type of thing. Like I, I don't think it's terribly far-fetched to say that a partner who has been abused uh and thrown out of their home might uh you know turn to their smartphone and and hit google to try to find a portal for crisis uh uh intervention and assistance and uh javascript kind of can get in the way of those types of goals and to serve those human needs uh when we when we have a tendency to lean on it just a little too much mm. i mean we've we've seen a sort of a glimpse of that over the last um 18 months or so with with covid and people going into isolation and as you say, needing to order groceries to be delivered, um, the the uh, the web becomes a lifeline <laughs> for them at that point. They're they're feeling uh, under the weather, um, not able to leave their accommodation because they're uh, they're isolating, and they have to get food and they have to get essential supplies. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it, it's an ever increasingly important part of just everyday life for us all. I think uh, exactly and. Um you know, going back to the sort of device story, um, Tim Cadlick wrote an, uh, an amazing piece uh, a couple years back. I think it was two years, maybe it was three years back, uh, but it was called Prioritizing the Long Tail of Performance. Um, and when you look at that, <clears throat> so in web performance uh, parlance, um, we kind of talk about lab data versus field data. And lab data is um, like when you're running Lighthouse or, you know, you're throwing throwing a website at a web page test to see how it's doing. Those are all really useful tools. Um, but when you but when you look at that field data, you really start to get a large, a larger picture and a larger view of wh who your audience really is. And in this article, Tim Cadlick uh, talks about what it means to prioritize the long tail of, of performance, meaning all these devices uh, that... Um, that are maybe not as beefy and as powerful as the devices we as developers may have. Um, and the, the idea behind that article is that if we can focus on that 90th or 95th percentile uh, we're, and, and improve that experience for those people, we're building, a, we're building a faster web for everyone, including those on fast devices. Um, and to tack a, a data point on that uh, in the U.S., um, and this is just from like statcounter.com, uh, something like 28 point around 28% of people are on an iOS device um, that this that this tool captures. And around 21% of them are, are Android. And Android tends to represent a good chunk of that long tail of devices because uh, Android's not monolithic. Uh, multiple device manufacturers uh, make Android phones. Um, but to kind of contrast that with the world, uh, because the world is more than just the United States, um, it's around 16% of people um, who use iOS and around like 41% of people who are on Android. So it, it, it really does uh, pay to prioritize uh, those slower or potentially slower experiences. 
I read in your book um, about device thermal throttling, which isn't something that I'd really ever considered before. What what are the concerns there? The concerns there, and I'm not like a I'm not like a, an expert on microprocessors by any means. I'm I'm just a web developer who <laughs> who probably writes a little too much. But um, so the idea behind thermal throttling, and this exists in all systems, um, not just like phones and tablets, is that. Uh, a microprocessor uh, will, when it takes on excessive workloads or really just workloads in general, um, the waste product of that work is heat. Uh, and so devices have ways of mitigating this. Like your laptop has both a passive uh, and an active cooling device. So like a passive cooling device is like a heat sink um, or some kind of heat spreader. <clears throat> um, and the active portion of that is like a fan to more to more um, uh, efficiently disperse heat. Uh, some like custom PC builds might use like liquid cooling, which is sort of a more relatively extreme example. But a mobile phone uh, doesn't have that um, because where are you going to really fit a fan and all that if portability is kind of your thing, right? <laughs> um, so in order for uh, these devices to cope with these heavy workloads, uh, they may uh, artificially reduce the speed uh, of the processor, uh, like reduce the clock rate uh, until that device enters a state in which that clock rate can be raised. And, and that has implications because if you're chewing through tons and tons and tons and tons of JavaScript, you have like these big chunks coming down the wire. Well, that kicks off processing, right? So it's a lot of, a lot of processing uh, through evaluation and parsing and, com and compilation and then execution. And if you're doing that with like a megabyte or two of JavaScript uh, and you have a lot of other processes going on in the background, like different tabs, that type of thing, um, that that can put your state like that that uh, raises the likelihood that the device may enter a thermal thermally throttled state, uh, which means that it will be less capable of taking on that extra work. So it's just sort of a, a negative feedback loop, isn't it? You You give the device lots of work to do. Uh, it gets very hot and then is less capable of actually executing that work because it's it's having to throttle back. Right, and and again, I'm not a microprocessor expert. I'm I'm sure that if um if an engineer who was really intimately familiar with this like could probably uh, correct me on some of the particulars, but the general idea is that yes, as that as that environmental pressure increases, uh, the device is less able to cope with these heavy workloads until that pressure decreases. So we're writing JavaScript for the entire sort of spectrum of devices from latest Apple. The M1 Max is the new processor, isn't it? Um, laptops all the way through to devices that barely have enough sort of working RAM to, to render a, a web page. But the web didn't start off like this. Um, Younger listeners might be interested to know that we used to build interactive web experiences without any JavaScript at all. Uh, are big, heavy frameworks going to be our undoing? I, I would say that um, frameworks have a time and a place, and those who who sort of read excerpts from this book uh, may get the idea that I'm anti-framework, and I'm definitely critical of, of several frameworks, um, but they do serve a purpose, and it is possible to use them in a way that... Uh, that preserves uh, a good user experience or can can result in a good user experience. Uh, but what I, I don't think we do enough of is sort of uh, critically evaluate these frameworks in terms of how they harm uh, runtime performance, right? So the type of stuff I'm talking about um, where if you click a button, right, 
And it takes the device like a second, maybe two, to respond to that input because there's so much going on in the background. You have third-party JavaScript uh, stuff like gathering analytics, and then you have like other things running on threads. And that if if you don't um, critically evaluate the runtime performance of a framework, um, you you might be leaving some opportunities on the table to better serve your users. So a good example I always like to use is um, React versus Preact. I've been kind of banging this drum for a while. I did a uh, an article for CSS Tricks a while back that profiled a basic click interaction uh, for like a mobile navigation menu. And it sounds trivial, uh, but what you find is that across all devices is that um, Preact delivers on better runtime performance. Um, but it has the basically the same API. There are differences. There are syntactic differences and stuff that can be papered over with Preact Compat. Uh, but that that simple, I shouldn't say a simple choice, but that choice, that fundamental choice uh, can be the difference between an experience that works really well for all users or at least most users or an experience that only works well for some. Um, hopefully that made some sense. <laughs> it was a little <laughs> I mean, with, with all the, the sort of frameworks and, and build tools, they seem to be getting all um, better all the time at doing things like tree shaking uh, and optimizing the the bundles that they ship and how uh, they then deliver to the browser. It, using big frameworks, is there is there a tipping point you think where you're writing such a big application, so much code of your own, that the framework is enabling you to ship less code because of all of its abstraction? Um, that's kind of a difficult question to answer. Um, one aspect of that is that um, the framework itself. Uh, represents an amount of code that you can never optimize away. So having like a thin framework like um, like Preact or um, uh, any number of like or like Svelte, for example, uh, that that helps a lot. Uh, but the the problem that I I've seen, and I think the data from the HTTP archive um, kind of kind of supports this point, is that it seems that anytime we have uh, these advances in microprocessors and networks getting faster. Uh, is that we we tend to consume uh, that that gain, right? We tend to just kind of be on this treadmill where we never really like advance. Um, and I, I don't know, like I'm not clairvoyant about what what the history of, or sorry, what the future of frameworks looks like. Um, I, I'm sure that there are some efficiency gains that can be can be gathered, but what we see in the field in terms of how much raw JavaScript is like, just the raw amount of JavaScript is being used. Uh, doesn't tell me that this is a problem we can kind of automate our way out of. I think we have to uh, we we have to be human beings and, and intervene and, and make decisions that are in the best interest of users. Um, otherwise, I, I don't see us getting off this treadmill. Um, not in my career, maybe, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> in the um, in the book, you talk about websites and web apps. Um, and how understanding the difference and which one that you you're working with helps you choose your strategy for um, how you develop and, and optimize. Um, tell us a bit about that. That is a really good question. Um, and I write about this in the eponymously titled article I wrote for List Apart called "Responsible JavaScript Part One," which is kind of the prelude to this book. Is that we sort of load a lot uh, into this terminology, like. As a technical writer, I see the two get used kind of interchangeably. Um, what I see uh, is with websites, the implication is that it's sort of a multi-page experience, right? It's a, it's a collection of documents. Now, that document 
those documents may have like embedded like functionality, like these little islands, uh, as the term lately has kind of been, uh, these little islands of functionality that enable people to get things done. But then there's like web apps and web apps sort of have this connotation of uh, native app like functionality. So we're talking about like single page applications. Uh, we're talking about heavy amounts of JavaScript to drive complex interactivity. And there are times when the web app model makes sense. Um, like, for example, uh, Spotify is a good example of this. Uh, that works better as a web app. Uh, you wouldn't really want to try to use that or design that as a multi-page application, um, like, like a traditional web site. Um, but I think it's not a sustainable default because when your default for every project is to say, well, we need to ship a single-page application uh, like a client-side router and a heavy framework and offload all of this processing uh, of like rendering from like the server onto the client. Uh, I think that that is where you start to reach a point where you're excluding uh, users, um, albeit unintentionally, but excluding them nonetheless. Is there a big chasm, do you think, between the people who um, uh, take the approach of we're going to publish a website? And it may have whatever interactive functionality. And those who say, we're a software company, we're making a product, um, a software product, and our platform that we're going to deliver it via is the web rather than native applications for multiple platforms. Is it is it likely that they're approaching the problem in completely different ways? And are the considerations different depending on your outlook at that point? That's a, that's a tough question. Um... So it was tough for me to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I would say that a a company that um, so a good example would be like uh, like a news website, right? Uh, they're they're well served by the sort of website model because it literally is a collection of documents, articles, um, and the people who develop those experience those experiences. Um, are probably going to have a different skill set than say a company like um, like Spotify or a company that has a like a large uh, web application um, like Envision or that type of thing. And so, yeah, I I think they're going to come at this uh, from different angles. Um, the way I've kind of looked at it is that there's a segment, or at least this is how I've perceived the web development community at large, is that there is a segment of people of web developers who came from non-traditional software development backgrounds, right? So like, and I'm one of these people, like I, I was tinkering with the web when I was kind of like a kid, right? Like in middle school and like doing stupid fan pages for all the, <laughs> for all the, the video games at the time that I really liked. Um, and I never had that sort of um, computer science education. There are computer science concepts that I picked up along the way. Um, and then there's also a segment of developers, especially I think that have come come around in the last like five to ten years, uh, who approach this uh, in a more computer science oriented way. And I think that's going to th those those differences in experiences are going to lead uh, each of those groups to draw their own conclusions about how best to develop for the web. But I I, I think the only way that you can really that you can sustainably develop for the web is to critically evaluate uh, what it is you're building and to try to align around an approach that best serves users uh, of those products. And that's sort of where the website and the web app models kind of 
sit in my head when I evaluate these things. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, in the book, you actually uh, cite some of my work. Thank you very much. Um, uh, and my, my choice of boring technologies on Noticed, uh, basically <laughs> PHP, Apache, and a sprinkling of hand-rolled JavaScript um, uh, it can create a very snappy user experience by default without needing to do any particular optimization. Um, I think that makes for a great user experience for the front-end visitors coming and viewing content on the site. But actually, I've, I kind of feel like that um, environment for authoring content, sort of the, you know, the flip side, once you're logged in and you're publishing stuff on the site, um, I, I think it suffers a bit from being built with a website approach rather than a, a, a more sort of JavaScript-heavy web app approach, uh, so much so that I'm thinking, oh, perhaps it needs, to be, it needs to be both. I need to continue publishing the front end in nice static HTML and, and CSS and tiny bits of JavaScript, um, but the back end where I want to provide a content authoring experience, maybe a different technology choice would be, uh, would be better. Um, it's quite interesting because it, it doesn't always have to be one thing or the other, does it? It's not, it's not a binary choice. It's more of a, a spectrum, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, think, I think we're starting to see more discussion in the community about web development being a spectrum like that. Um, no, you know, all to just be straight up for people who might be interested in my book, it definitely comes from the website side of the spectrum. And again, because I feel that that's always like a good default. Um, if, if you don't know how you want to build something, uh, it's probably best to try to build it in a way that minimizes uh, the use of JavaScript and minimizes uh, pushing um, more work onto the client. Um, that said, uh, I, I think that Noticed is an excellent experience. Um, I, I think that these well-worn and sort of really, quote-unquote, boring technologies really work well for the task at hand. Um, and, it, and it does so in a way that's like kind of open and enabling for the developer, right? Um, you don't have to have like deep knowledge of like um, of uh, state uh, management stores or state management frameworks to really mm. pull these kinds of things off. And I think that noticed is well served uh, by that particular approach. Uh, but there, to your point, I think there there are opportunities in any website to move closer toward the middle of the spectrum without going all in on like. You know, all client-side routing, like heavy like frameworks that manage everything on the client and that type of thing. Um, I think the islands approach is starting to is starting to explore what that looks like. Um, and I'll admit, I I've probably have unintentionally done some of the islands <laughs> type thing. I think we have for quite a while. We just haven't really put a name on it. But I think now that we've kind of identified that as like maybe a midpoint, we might start to see web experiences that. Uh, that deliver on a good user experience, um, but are still more interactive. Hopefully that wasn't terribly meandering. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it sort of hops back a little bit to the days when we would um, embed a uh, an island of flash or <laughs> something yeah. in a page. Where this is our little interactive section and the rest of it sort of flows around. Yeah, like flash, like, oh my God. Um, Three iterations of my personal portfolio out of college were really crappy to advanced like flash knockoffs and like hover effects. And that stuff was really, really fun. Um, and I miss it sometimes. Like there's a whole like just wealth of content that's just going to kind of disappear because we don't use flash anymore. And that really sucks. But in a way, it was kind of the precursor 
uh, to this sort of islands thing that we're talking about, uh, which is you could just have like a static web page and everything, but then you would have this really richly interactive experience just kind of like plopped right in the middle of it. For a long time, progressive enhancement has been considered a best practice way to build web experiences. Is that still the case, do you think? Um, I would grant that it's probably, not probably, I would grant that it's more work to do progressive enhancement because in a way you're kind of bifurcating um, your development experience. You're, you're trying to deliver minimum viable functionality of a website um, in a way that the server can handle sort of like these, these key interactions. Um, but then on top of that, you're saying, okay, well, now I want to facilitate this uh, interaction to be just a little bit more smoother with JavaScript. Um, I still think it's a viable way to accomplish um, to accomplish your goals uh, with your website or your app or your, or your product. Um, but what I would say is that I would never recommend that every single interaction on a website has to be facilitated by like this synchronous like navigation sort of pattern. Um, so like a good example might be, you know, your checkout page uh, for your e-com website should definitely have a server route. Um, it sh you should have a server route to add things to the cart. Um, and then you should be able to sort of sprinkle on enough, just enough JavaScript to make that a little bit more delightful so that um, things can be a little bit faster and more asynchronous. Let's chat about the next move for your business. Professionals around the globe are utilizing Wix's complete digital ecosystem to create, manage, and grow their clients' businesses online. Wix's infrastructure is trusted for performance, reliability, and security, plus limitless creation capabilities and robust business solutions. Meet any client's needs with complete coding and design freedom and build responsive sites with industry-specific solutions like bookings, reservations, and payments. Every website is backed by enterprise-level security and includes a complete toolset of powerful SEO features so you can deliver complex, high-performing digital experiences of any size. Plus, with tools for your own business, you can manage everything. Client and team collaboration, customer management, client billing, analytics, all from one dashboard. And when it comes to reaching your goals, a success manager is committed to your success, making sure you have the resources you need. So see why web professionals around the world are choosing Wix. Head over to wix.com slash partners. That's wix.com slash partners. And we thank Wix for sponsoring this episode. When it comes to measuring performance, we hear a lot about um, core web vitals, uh, mainly from Google. Are those really the, the benchmark that we should be measuring against? Or is that just what Google wants us to think? I now appreciate this might be a difficult question <laughs> that you started working at Google. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so I'm speaking for myself here. Um, I I think that Web Vitals are, the initial core Web Vitals are a good attempt at defining what parts of the user experience are important. I do think that uh, metrics such as um, cumulative layout shift and largest contentful paint start thinking about uh, the experience in ways that we really hadn't started to quantify before, um, particularly cumulative layout shift, because if there's ever been a moment where you rage tap, it's because a button likes to move around the page or something. I mean, I think that that's a helpful thing to measure. It, it is imperfect. And I think anybody who, 
who works on core web vitals would would agree that we're, you know that improvement is is desired in some of these metrics. Um, there are other metrics that I don't necessarily agree with entirely. Um, like first input delay is a metric that is kind of difficult to to put a pin on. I, I think it's really useful, right? Because you, what you are literally saying is we want to measure the the delay in interactivity on that first interaction that the user makes. Uh, but it does lack a little bit of context, right? Because some some a lot of things can affect it because it doesn't necessarily always tie into JavaScript. Uh, first input delay uh, could represent the delay that's incurred by um, focusing a form field, right? That type of thing. Things in HTML. Um, I I think those metrics, uh, such metrics um, like first input delay, uh, can be. They can be beneficial if you can contextualize them with things like entries out of the long task API, element timing, and those types of things. Um, I I ultimately think that the the future of Core Web Vitals uh, will prove out that it will be helpful and in and in instrumental in measuring what makes a good user experience. That that's my personal opinion. <laughs> I guess it's it's one of those things that you can always measure against yourself, measure your own improvements or whether um, your experience has, has got worse if your score changes. Um, not caring so much about the traffic lights, but caring about what you know about the context of your site and uh, how a change has made an improvement. I think that metrics uh, such as uh, cumulative layout shift are excellent, uh, but they too uh, could benefit from a little bit of improvement. Uh, as it stands, cumulative layout shift mostly measures uh, layout shifts that happen during load. Um, and as we know, uh, when a user uh, visits a page and lands on a page, um, that layout shifts can occur at any time, right? So there's there's definitely work, I think, that, that can be done to improve how we observe uh, that kind of phenomenon, for sure. I think uh, layout stability is one of the things that's actually a little bit more difficult to achieve when you're working uh, with progressive enhancement. Um, sometimes when you load a, a server rendered page and then begin enhancing it in the client, there can be a danger of creating that sort of layout shift, can't there? Absolutely. Um, and that's kind of where like hydration um, of components becomes kind of kind of tricky because the dimensions of that component may change for any number of reasons. Like there could be content present in the client side component that just doesn't render on the server uh, because of, of uh, state uh, that isn't evaluated until it's executed on the client. Um, it's it's an extremely difficult problem, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend I I have like <laughs> the silver bullet for it. I wanted to uh, talk a bit about sort of dynamic imports and code splitting, both being different techniques for the problem of downloading and executing a huge bundle of JavaScript upfront at the at the start of the experience. Is there a risk of over optimizing? with making lots of small requests, particularly on simpler, smaller projects? Or is it something that there's absolutely no harm in implementing um, sort of from from the outset, preempting that you're going to have these problems? Uh, or, you know, should you be waiting until you actually see performance problems before thinking about those sorts of things? Um, so I would I would recommend the, <laughs> the tail end of what you just said uh, is a good way to lead in with this. Um, we, we shouldn't... We shouldn't try to prematurely optimize um, unless, of course, those optimizations can be achieved very quickly and easily. Um, but if if it takes a lot of effort to optimize early on, 
when there aren't really a lot of performance issues. I would argue that code splitting is probably something that doesn't have to happen. Uh, you can probably just load that functionality up front. Um, but uh, for example, I talk about this in the book. Uh, if you have a high value interaction uh, that is driven by a large piece of JavaScript, and to me, a large piece of JavaScript could mean 20 kilobytes because over the wire that that's compressed and that could end up being a 60 kilobyte chunk of JavaScript. And if you can pull that out of the main bundle or any of your, your myriad of bundles, your site might be shipping, you're going to help uh, startup performance. But in the book, I discuss a technique uh, about perceiving when, or at least attempting to perceive uh, when the user might make a high value interaction. So the example I use is a chunk of JavaScript that's used to validate the contents of a form because HTML form validation is great, but it's also not stylable and it's it's pretty straightforward. Um, there's not tons of flexibility uh, for things like um, like uh, type equals email, right? It evaluates it a certain way. Um, however, uh, that that validation of the form on the client is really helpful uh, because we can also style it and we can align that the appearance of that validation uh, to be closer to what the brand aesthetic is or what the aesthetic of the website is. And so the in this example, what I did was, as I said, if a user focuses, even just focuses any of the fields in the form, that's the point in which we preload that piece of JavaScript. So that hopefully by the time, and I would hope, because it takes a little while to fill out a form, that the, that the network has enough time to pull that down so that when the dynamic import is called, it can just hit the cache to get what has already been preloaded. Um, it's, it's something I've been working with a little bit here and there, and it's difficult to do in all situations. Like for example, you can't do this reliably all the time on hover because some devices don't have a fine pointer. They, they have a, you know, they're, it's tap inputs, right? So a hover occurs uh, at a different time than if you had a fine pointer, for example. One, um, aspect of responsible JavaScript use is thinking about how we consume our users available resources. Um, be that sort of battery life or data allowance if they're on a, a, a data plan. Are there techniques that we can lean on here to, to help us think about those things? Yeah, so um, currently, um, or at least historically, in the, like the last, I don't know exactly when this, this feature shipped, but um, Chrome for Android, uh, and there used to be a Chrome extension for this, had a thing called save data. And what you would do uh, is if, in your settings in Chrome for Android, you would say um, reduce data usage. I forget exactly what the, the label is on the on the checkbox, but you check it, you turn it on. And what that does is it sends this signal uh, as a request header. Um, and it's a request header that's called save data, and it only has one token, and it's just on. Because if it's off, the header just doesn't get sent. Uh, and you can, on the back end at least, um, you can look at this header, and you can decide, well, do I really need to send the, the styles and the JavaScript for this carousel, or can I render this differently? Or maybe you start thinking about stuff outside of JavaScript, um, where you're, maybe you send lower quality images. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities there to reduce data usage. Uh, this is evolving, though. Uh, save data is still around, um, and I think it will be for the foreseeable future. But now we're converging on a new media query um, called uh, prefers reduced data. So we have stuff like prefers reduced motion, prefers color scheme. It's sort of 
in that vein where I anticipate that these will be operating system level settings that we can make to say, I really want want uh, websites or apps to use less data with this signal. And you can match it uh, on the client side uh, with the prefers reduced uh, data media query using match media in JavaScript. Um, and so then you could use that in JavaScript to say, ah, maybe this functionality isn't like the most important thing. Maybe we don't really need to load uh, this like associated video embed if the text serves the purpose, that type of thing. Um, but it also converges with the save data header. Uh, at least this is what I observed is when when I turn on the uh, the save data feature in Chrome for Android, uh, the prefers uh, reduced data colon reduced <laughs> media query matches, but it also sends save data. So you can still act on this in the back end or the front end. That's nice. So in a, a sort of app context, you might, if you're um, rendering a, a big data table, you might only return some very key columns out of that, the most commonly referenced um, rather than the full data um, and, and really sort of reduce the amount that's sent over the wire. Right. Or you might say um, you might, pull APIs less frequently um, in JavaScript, that type of thing. It, it It's kind of a, a hackneyed phrase, but it really is limited to your imagination. There's a huge space where I think that concept can be applied to deliver better user experiences. Uh, and I've used it with a client of mine uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, in rural Wisconsin, it's just like, it is an internet dead zone. <laughs> like, it's so <laughs> difficult to like, I, I don't know how people like, like cope with how slow it is. Uh, maybe it's just because of my data plan and I might be roaming or whatever, but um, I've used this to, to some effect to say, you know, maybe they don't need this carousel. Uh, somebody who's just kind of out there in the sticks who, you know, there's a lot of farmland in, in Wisconsin, but there's also like a lot of forests and like some, somebody might need some work done like in logging, right? It's a logging company. Um, and so maybe all of these images aren't really crucial to that user experience. And they really just want to get to like the phone number or whatever it is. And they want to get to it as fast as possible. One, one thing many of us do is write JavaScript in sort of new shiny versions of VS script uh, and TypeScript sometimes, and then use build tools to transpile that down to older syntax for, for browsers that encounter it out in the wild. Um, in some ways, that feels like uh, an excellent practice because we're building a code base with nice, more modern, clean code. Um, and in the case of TypeScript, perhaps more reliable uh, code, less uh, less bugs. But are there consequences of of doing this transpilation process that we might need to be aware of? Anytime you you take a new syntax uh, and you have to transform it so that it's more broadly compatible, that's going to Generally, I, I I have not done like this comprehensive audit of all features, but generally I've observed that that results in more JavaScript. And, and that makes sense because uh, for things like uh, default parameters on functions, which are well supported, by the way, and probably you can ship, you, I think you could probably just ship that uh, untranspiled and be fine. But it's, it's a good example. Uh, when that gets transformed, uh, it has to inject a lot of helper code uh, in the function to to look to, to evaluate those defaults, right? So you get that equivalent functionality. Now, JavaScript is evolving all the time. And I think for the time being, uh, we're going to be coping with uh, transpilation costs. And I, I, it definitely does have an impact. Uh, when I worked with an e-com 
uh, company, um, we were able to reduce several of their bundles for their pages uh, anywhere between 10%, maybe even 5% in some cases, uh, to like sometimes 30 or 40% um, when we used a technique uh, to to uh, transpile two sets of bundles, right? I talked about this at Smashing Conf. The name that got kind of got tacked on it was differential serving, where you say, I'm going to generate these transform bundles for older browsers uh, and serve it to them. And I will tr I'll generate a different bundle for users on modern browsers or evergreen browsers uh, that will be smaller because there will be less of that transpilation overhead. And when we use that, um, there was a measurable improvement in the user experience and there were signals that that engagement was better uh, when we did this. That said, differential serving is an interesting thing because uh, IE 11 is kind of now like fading. It's taking time, but it's fading. Uh, but uh, Matt Hobbs, uh, who works for the UK government, uh, I think he works on the NHS uh, website. I think. Uh, don't, don't quote me on that, Matt. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he, he sent me some data that showed that there was still a fair amount of people who are still on Internet Explorer. Uh, and not just Internet Explorer 11. Like There were some columns or rows in this data, rather, that showed that some people were still on like IE6 or IE7. Um, and so you, you have to evaluate when it makes sense to do something like that because it is a lot of extra work and it takes a lot of effort. In the case of the NHS or literally any government service, I would say that it's virtually a mandate that you have to preserve a, a level of functionality that serves literally everybody uh, because you don't know where they're going to be accessing the web off of, right? It's the constraints we develop for are like, are incredible like it's really really hard we it's thousands and thousands of different types of devices and i think it makes sense in those cases but maybe not so much for you know your regular like web app right um it just depends on what the what the purpose is so keeping on top of the um the browsers that you need to support and the features that you need to transpile uh, and keeping your configuration and your build tool up to date is becomes quite important um yeah uh, for sure. Uh, it's This is sort of the more technical part of how you set up tool chains uh, to do this, but um, evaluating what your, what your user base looks like is very important because if a browser kind of falls out of a certain threshold of usage um, from significant to relatively insignificant, uh, that might be the point at which you decide to evaluate, hey, maybe we need to bump things up in our browsers list configuration so that we're transpiling bundles uh, to be smaller since we don't need to ship those transforms anymore. Um, but it is kind of like another added step. Uh, and one of the approaches I talk about uh, in the book is that you can, you can write your JavaScript one in a couple ways. You could decide that uh, your style for using JavaScript uh, will be to rely on older language constructs uh, that are natively well-supported um, like I think const and let are supported back to IE 11. So it doesn't preclude you from using uh, those types of things. Um, but it, it allows you to ship less JavaScript. Um, whereas you, or you could say like in the, the alternate <laughs> approach might be that you are going to write JavaScript for newer browsers only and accept that a segment of your users may not have functionality. But again, that depends on the purpose that your website is serving. And whether or not it's it's right. crucial, right, or infrastructure. And the 
the web platform is moving on at uh, a magnificent pace, it seems, at the moment. And there seem to be all sorts of things being added to CSS, for example, that offer capabilities that we previously have to lean on JavaScript for. I mean, is one way to use JavaScript responsibly to just not use it and to lean on native browser features instead? I I think that also works for JavaScript itself. Um, where it makes sense to use uh, an API directly uh, rather than an abstraction of it, um, definitely do that. But uh, certainly in the case of HTML and CSS, um, there are there are things we can now do uh, or will be able to do in CSS um, that we just don't need JavaScript for. Um, so an example of this would be... Um, uh, what's the word for it? Uh, truncation <laughs> of like of, um, of content, right? That's something that we can do in CSS. Whereas I've been in situations or in projects where I've seen libraries or a library get downloaded that does that. And we don't necessarily need to really do that anymore because CSS can handle it. Or uh, we have access to these layout modes now um, where we don't really need, if, if we invest the time to learn these layout modes like grid, uh, we don't really need to fall back on on layout libraries uh, to handle these things for us, um, and we can we can develop these experiences that are unique. And what's great about that is with layout modes like CSS Grid, um, if they're abstracted, it it kind of reduces what you can do with them because you're only able to take advantage of what the abstraction offers. Uh, and if you really want to build some eye catching layouts that really like push the boundaries of what's possible. Um, I always like to point to Jen Simmons, um, uh, her experimental layout lab homepage. Mm. I don't know how you would achieve a layout like that uh, if you abstracted it uh, into its own sort of layout library. You almost have to use it. I would think more than almost, you would have to use uh, CSS Grid directly in order to accomplish something like that. And that is like zero JavaScript, and it's incredible, and it's really neat. Um, and I... I think the web in general would benefit more if we leaned more heavily on CSS and other core web technologies um, uh, as much as we do on JavaScript. Probably not possible, but (laughs) one can dream. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the book Responsible JavaScript is out now from A Book Apart, and I really like it. It, It's full of very practical information. It's very to the point. Um, you know, there's there's not there's not filler. <laughs> it's not like reading a, a recipe online where you have to hear about a trip to Peru before you get to the nitty gritty. It's just like it's all straight in there, and it, it's all very nicely written. Was it a, a challenge to put that set of information together? Uh, I I'll have to ask uh, if this is the case, but I I think Responsible JavaScript might be the longest book uh, that. A book apart is put out, but I would have to go and reach uh, into the into the closet for my copy of uh, Responsible Responsive Design to see if I beat out <laughs> Scott Gell on that because that was a <laughs> a bit of a book, uh, an awesome book by the way. Um, it was challenging. Um, I'm as your listeners can probably guess, I'm sort of a naturally verbose person and and, and recovering trying to like be more succinct. Uh, but we really packed in as much as we could and kept it as straight to the point uh, while still trying to retain some some lively prose so it didn't like sound mechanical. But the result was that the manuscript is like 42,000 words. So uh, it's it's a it's a book. It's a chunk of words. Um, <laughs> and we had a great time working on it. People at A Book Apart were fantastic and, and really 
setting up those guardrails so that we would be successful. And it's very much a book that you can um, sort of dip into various parts. You don't you don't need to read it cover to cover uh, to gain loads of uh, helpful information. You can just sort of find the bit that's relevant to the problem that you're facing at the moment and uh, uh, and dive in there. So I think that's uh, that's really great about it. Um, so I've been learning all about responsible JavaScript. What have you been learning about lately, Jeremy? Uh, kind of an ongoing thing that I've been doing uh, since it came out is messing with the CSS Paint API. Um, I really like the Paint API. I mean, it's it has kind of always existed in its own like in its own way since like the Canvas two D context has been a thing. Because that's for those who are unaware, uh, the CSS Paint API is a way in which you can embed a two D Canvas context and parameterize it and control it with CSS, which opens up a lot of really interesting possibilities. Like you can animate. Uh, things that you couldn't previously animate and that type of thing. And recently I've been doing a blog refresh um, that is, uh, I, I'm a huge Final Fantasy geek, uh, like Final Fantasy 2 I just replayed. Um, and so, and there's like 15 of them and 16 is coming out sometime. Uh, <laughs> but it's kind of a retro feel. And so I've been using the CSS Paint API to to generate a random overworld uh, using different tiles. So there's like rivers and stuff that like run through and grass tiles and trees and that type of thing. Uh, and parameterizing that. So like if the user uh, visits my website in dark mode, um, that paint worklet will be rendered as though it's night. Um, it'll just have like kind of an overlay on it and that type of thing. Um, but the, the painting API is amazing. Um, I, I got to give a shout out to uh, Tim Holman. He, uh, I saw him at uh, JSConf australia and he did a talk about generative artwork that was really just it really like got me interested and then like sam richard in that at css conf uh the day before talked about the css paint api when those two things came together for me it was just like wow this is so cool and so i actually did a thing called paintlets it's a paintlets.herokuapp.com uh if you visit in chrome and you have to unfortunately because it's not super well supported yet you can see like a bunch of different random like artwork uh, randomly generated artwork. And yeah, I've just, that's what I've been into. Sorry. Long tail on that. <laughs> Amazing. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Jeremy, you can find him on Twitter where he's at Malchatter and find his writing presentations, videos, and projects on his personal website, jeremy.codes. Responsible JavaScript is available now from a book apart, and you can find more information about that at responsiblejs.dev. Thanks for joining me today, Jeremy. Did you have any parting words? Um, just go forward and, and build for the web the best way you can and uh, try to keep the user in mind. Uh, that's kind of my mantra, and I, I'm hoping that this book makes that stick a little bit. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at SmashingMag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food.